from Janice Henderson Investors. This is Research in Action, a podcast series that gives investors a behind-the-scenes look at the research and analysis used to shape our understanding of markets and inform investment decisions. On this episode, we're joined by portfolio manager Denny Fish to talk about the tech sector. Tech stocks were the darlings of the pandemic, but rising rates and supply chain disruptions are putting pressure on the sector. And these issues don't look to be going away anytime soon, which you might assume doesn't bode well for tech. Or does it? Valuations can go pretty extreme in both directions whenever you have you know, emerging growth patterns um, like we have. And by the way, that's getting better and better as we've had the volatility that we've had. Denny leads the U.S.-based tech sector team and has been investing in tech for nearly two decades. He's seen the industry go through many cycles and believes big themes like cloud computing, artificial intelligence, remain in the early stages of their growth potential. And that recent volatility may only be making their investment case more appealing. I'm Carolyn Bigda. And I'm Matt Perone, Director of Research. That's today on Research in Action. Welcome to the program. Yep, thanks for having me. So to begin, let's talk about the volatility we've seen in tech stocks lately and why the sector pulled back this year. What's changed? Yeah, well, I think things actually started to change before we got to this year. If we just rewind the clock a little bit, the market really started to discount the idea of a higher interest rate backdrop. Um, due to inflation and the prospect for the Fed to start raising rates, kind of is back as far as call it October, November. What's been interesting is that if you focus on what happened in the latter part of last year, um, the real growthy parts of the technology ecosystem really started to feel it on the chin. And what I refer to there, kind of the higher multiple earlier in the life cycle technology stocks, uh, like like software companies, e-commerce, or um, the digital ad ecosystem. Those were the first to kind of really start to feel it. And, and that really persisted into this year. The thing that's a little different um, over the last couple of months is, you know, the sectors that had actually held up better were both a bit more value-oriented legacy stocks with low multiples, um, just the nature of the factor rotation in the market. But secondarily, cyclical growth companies like semiconductors and semiconductor capital equipment actually continue to hold up fairly well um, through the balance of 21, given shortages in the entire supply chain, which have inventories at the lowest levels ever and order books that are going out into 2023. And we can argue the merits of double ordering and potential and things like that. But nonetheless, like... It's, you know, the tightest supply demand environment we've had in the supply chain for semiconductors in many years. But then what's kind of happened is, you know, the whole prospect of rising rates, slowing the economy, and then you pile on, you know, if you told me like we were going to have an environment where we were going to go through a pandemic, so we're going to have to figure that out. And then we're going to come out of a pandemic and we're going to figure out what that meant. Um, And then we were going to have the highest levels of inflation that we've had since the early 80s. And the Fed was behind the curve and they were going to have to raise rates. That's created a bit of a tricky backdrop. And so as a result, 
even some of the sectors of tech that had been holding up started to feel it just given the prospect for you know lower economic growth and there's generally a correlation there and the then even like the large ballast companies have come in a bit more than the broader market when we think about the Microsofts and the Apples of the world. So I know that was a mouthful, but there's been a lot going on (laughs) (laughs) to the point of your question. So a lot of curveballs and some of them have been hitting the the tech sector pretty hard. But Matt, I think at the same time, there are some underlying secular trends that are going on in tech that, that we should also be talking about, right? Yeah, I think Denny lays out what's been happening in the short term to your question. But I think what his team does very well is identifying these secular themes, these megatrends, uh, and the killer applications that come out of them and how they change our lives. And I think, Denny, I don't want to speak for you, but I think we're in the middle innings of many of them. So, Denny, if you wouldn't mind laying out you know, what you and your team have identified as these key themes that you're writing. Yeah, that's absolutely. And I, I think that is probably the most important context as we think about the world going forward. And that is exactly what you both just laid out in terms of the mega themes, which in our view, over a multi-year period, kind of overwhelm many of you know the factor dynamics or what might be going on over the short term. And it's kind of like the old adage, we always, you know, overestimate what can happen in a year. We completely underestimate what can happen in a decade as we think about technology trends and the big trends. I mean, it's, (laughs) I know it's a broadly used term and it's been around for a while now, but cloud, you know, it's interesting. It's rare that you're 15, 17 years into a mega theme and you're only like 10 or 15% penetrated into a multi-trillion dollar market. But that's the reality of where we're at. So we still continue to be really enthusiastic there. Secondly, we think one of the most powerful trends for the next couple of decades, maybe two, three decades, is the proliferation of artificial intelligence into both technology businesses as well as the broader economy. And we think where we're like really early on and has the potential for the most profound implications for both improving productivity and improving the quality of life globally across many, many different sectors. And, you know, that kind of ties into cloud because the reason that we're getting to where we're getting today is because these companies are scaling um, on the back end in a way that allows companies to leverage compute cycles and GPUs and algorithms in a way that they just weren't able to historically because for all practical purposes, companies have an infinite supply of compute now. And so that's that's really good for certain types of companies. And then as well as semiconductor companies that are on the leading edge, providing technology to the cloud providers. We're really bullish on this idea of the development of sovereign interests in the semiconductor supply chain. It's no secret that the world has become way too uh, reliant on Taiwan and Korea to a lesser extent for semiconductor content and every major nation globally wants to have some degree of control over that. And so that's going to be a big theme over the next decade is countries that went through a 30 year cycle of, of outsourcing semiconductor design and development to now wanting to manufacture products on their own soil. And so that's pretty darn good for the semiconductor supply chain. And then it kind of dovetails into another mega theme and that's this whole proliferation of semiconductor content, um, making devices smarter and more relevant and kind of the broad strokes theme of Internet of Things. But we continue to be really big believers in that. 
and where we have connectivity just that just continues to densify is 5g gets broadly deployed across the world and that's going to open up the use case for many many new and useful applications so you kind of combine cloud ai um, more content at the edge a densification of connectivity and now you have the backbone for really cool stuff like auton- like truly autonomous vehicles the evolution of the metaverse and just uniquely connected applications that are going to transcend just about every industry on the planet. So that's kind of how we're thinking about it in broad strokes. And uh, we're still in the early innings of many and middle innings for some of uh, these these mega trends as we think about the next 10 years. So that sounds like a lot <laughs> that's going on in the tech <laughs> yeah, space <it> right now. <laughs> All while this volatility seems like a sideshow at this point, just given, you know, the, the real stuff that's happening underneath um, in terms of the development. That, and that's exactly right. That's the key point here. I think everything that Denny laid laid out has years to go in its evolution, and, and some of them are just getting started. And so we do get lost in the volatility sometimes, but really these themes have lots of legroom to go. And I think Denny's right to focus on those uh, long-term themes as your guiding light, if you will, towards uh long-term value creation. Yeah. So maybe we could just step back a little bit and go through some of these themes a little more in depth, um, maybe starting with with the cloud. One report that I read said that spending on the whole cloud, which includes things like services, hardware, and software components, and so on, that's going to surpass 1.3 trillion USD by 2025, which is up from just over $700 billion in 2021. So maybe, Denny, you could talk a little bit about kind of what's driving this growth and the types of companies that might be best positioned to sort of take advantage of that growth. Yeah, there. I mean, there are many different facets to it, but I think the the core underlying principle to what's driving the growth is, you know, we had an infrastructure that built up around computing technology over about a 40-year period from the 60s kind of through the early 2000s. And it had various iterations from, you know, mainframes to client server, and then ultimately this handoff to cloud. And importantly, what the handoff to cloud did was it massively expanded the market. And it massively expanded the market because ironically, you got a lot more efficiency out of your spend. So you could deploy more dollars against it because you were getting better return. the access to simplified, unlimited, infinite, scalable resources that do not require the same level of expertise for every organization to have within their organization. The other thing that sometimes doesn't get talked about as much, um, the cloud massively lowered barriers to entry for digital forward businesses on the internet, as well as in software, and in AI, as, as we were talking about. And this, this is a really important one because, you know, I'm going to date myself here, but I worked for Oracle back in the mid to late 90s. And there was, there was a period where every startup that got funded by a venture capital firm, the first thing they told them to do was go out and buy a bunch of Sun servers, a bunch of Oracle databases, some Veritas, some BEA. And like, there was like this laundry list of companies that you had to go invest in. And it was millions of dollars of the capital outlay to actually get the business 
up and running before like a single penny came out the door. And you compare that today to be able to go and grab a, you know, an Azure or an AWS instance, start developing code, distribute it in a low touch model using call, you know, maybe search algorithms through Google. And suddenly you have a scalable business with de minimis amounts of capital that actually had to be put against that. And so it's opened up this huge innovation cycle around both more traditional companies being able to leverage technology more effectively, but also creating the glide path for the digital economy. And that's super important. And, you know, Satya Nadella, I, I, I respect him so much. And he's got this very simple framework. And it's like, look, if we kind of look at, you know, the global economy today, and it's, you know, 80, 90 trillion dollars or whatever it is, and roughly 5% of that, call it four to $5 trillion gets spent on technology in one form or another. And we just assume that mix shifts to 10% over the next 10 years or so. It's interesting to do the math and it totally makes sense why that would happen. And that the broader technology industry grows two, three, four times that of, of the economy itself. The cloud enables that spend and that efficiency curve to continue to happen. And that's, you know, in our view, why there's so long way to go and, you know, kind of why it's had the, the growth profile it's had um, at scale relative to anything that we've seen before. So in that setup, what looks most interesting to you at this point? Is it the companies that are actually providing the cloud services that allow companies to scale and get these efficiencies? Or is it the startups and the other companies that can leverage this new ecosystem? Or is it both? Yeah, it's it's both, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> to be clear. Um, now, it's like with everything, you know, everything has a price. And so, you know, the one thing that we haven't touched upon is valuations and valuations can go pretty extreme in both directions whenever you have, you know, emerging growth patterns um, like we have. So, yes, to both of those, assuming that we can put together a fundamental investment case for an attractive return in the business. And by the way, that's getting better and better as we've had the volatility that we've had and probably a little more excited about the the valuations that we're looking at uh, than we have for quite some time. But I'll tell you another area that like just doesn't get as much attention, and that's the underlying building blocks, uh, the silicon. We talk about this content growth in the economy and devices, and that's good for steady growth, analog semiconductors that kind of grow a little bit faster than the broader economy. But then there's also like this insatiable amount of demand for for compute resources and AI. And, you know, the cloud providers are providing that. And there are a limited number of companies that actually provide the silicon content at the leading edge. And there are a limited number of companies that actually provide the design services for that. And a limited number of companies that actually provide the equipment to actually manufacture that. And then the rest of Semicap equipment, they're like these really nice cyclical growth businesses that carry low valuations that um, effectively compete as narrow monopolies in their swim lanes. And so it's interesting because all of these themes, when you look at them, particularly this cloud one, there are a lot of like really interesting underlying currents that support both the idea of true robust secular growth, which we tend to be attracted to, but also attractive opportunities in places in the value chain where the growth is more moderate, a bit more cyclical, of course, but very reasonable valuations relative to the competitive positions of these companies and the duration of growth over a multi-year cycle. So that's how I would characterize it. 
I would say just to emphasize Denny's point around the high-performance semiconductor ecosystem that includes the semi-cap equipment and the high-performance chips that that his team has rightly been focused on. Like Denny, I was an engineer as well, and the innovation there is just astounding. And what it's enabling us to do, you know, one application that will hopefully be a killer application is autonomous vehicles. And and these chips enable that. It's like you're going to have a supercomputer on wheels now in your car. You know, again, we talked about these long-term themes that that Tenet seems working on. I think you're seeing more and more of that in everyday use. Yeah, that's actually a really good point just to kind of layer onto that. And importantly, the way the cloud extends to support something like autonomous vehicles, if you think about an autonomous vehicle, it's kind of the killer app, right, for all of these technologies converging. You need super dense connectivity. You need it heavily localized. You need edge compute. So these cloud providers now, like the next big opportunity in addition to the core business is building out all of these edge compute opportunities so that we can enable these use cases like autonomous vehicles and augmented reality and virtual reality. For those of us who aren't as tech savvy, um, could you just describe what edge compute is? Yeah, it's effectively... So the beauty of cloud so far has been you've been able to centralize a lot of compute and storage and access to applications and so forth um, in these large data centers. And then you create big data centers all over the world. So you have these points of presence. But as your applications require lower and lower levels of latency, meaning if you're an autonomous vehicle, uh, you got to get the information back and forth pretty darn fast, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, um, you need the data processing to get closer and closer to the actual device that's accessing it. And that's the idea of creating many, many more opportunities for what are called these edge data centers. And there are a lot of things we could talk about in terms of how that could evolve and it's still very early on, but ultimately that's another opportunity and it's necessary and needed to actually be able to fulfill the promise of some of these long tail opportunities that are gonna be really meaningful to society. Got it. So it's sort of similar to 5G, which also needs, I guess, closer connectivity or or lower latency, correct? Yeah, totally. Because like 4G was all about expanding access of cellular coverage. It was like, can we get geographies covered with cellular access? And then 5G is all about densifying the coverage and leveraging things like small cells and, you know, other things to make our speeds faster and those access points closer to the devices that are accessing them. So yeah, that's a good question. So the mega theme here is, and Denny, correct me here, but is not only do you have increasing content in everyday use, content per vehicle, content per household, et cetera, but you also have the increasing complexity of that content in in all forms. And it's this this dual nature of the the innovation and the the content story that is accelerating the adoption here. Yeah, that's 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 exactly right. And semis are basically the building blocks of this new ecosystem that we're talking about. Can we talk a little bit then about how semiconductor stocks have performed recently? Because it sounds like if there's so much demand for them that these uh, companies should just be in super high demand among investors. But if I recall correctly, semiconductor stocks have traditionally been a little bit cyclical, a little bit volatile. And so I didn't know what sort of your take is 
on this area of tech right now as an investment opportunity? There are a couple of things. Um, and, and one of the things that we also hadn't um, mentioned about semiconductors is there's been a significant amount of consolidation across the space over the last 15 years. And that just creates a much better industry structure too. So kind of like what we talked about earlier, you have these narrow monopolies, you have these kind of great end markets, really good management teams. I mean, the operating margins in many of these businesses are so much higher than they were 15 years ago. But there's just always one thing that hangs out there with semis and they're cyclical businesses. For those of us that have invested in them over many years, every single cycle, I always want to believe this is different Mm. because these businesses are so great. right? And like, there's a reason China's had multiple five-year plans now about like, how do we get self-sufficient and semiconductor content? Because we need it to be able to grow our economy without uncertainty because you just can't, you know, you can't move forward without, without semis, but nonetheless, (laughs) there's always a cycle and we're not that far removed from 2018 when semis went through a, a nasty inventory correction and it was when the Trump administration was pushing on China too. And you just had like a storm that came together and it was a very, very difficult situation for semiconductor companies. And so I think like that's always in investors' minds and why they've performed despite having still what I would argue are attractive valuations relative to the broader market, which is always interesting to me. There is this prospect that semis are, are going to have some degree of impact from economic growth, whether it's more positive or more negative. And if we assume that we're in just the very first stage of a tightening environment um, with the Federal Reserve and inflation, and you know that puts general pressure on economic profits, that broad-based semis might you know struggle a bit more in that environment than this incredibly robust environment that we've had for the last 12 to 15 months, where anyone who could get just, I mean, auto manufacturers, cloud providers, industrial companies, you name it, everyone's just been salivating for semiconductors because they just haven't been able to get their hands on them. But that could normalize. And then, you know, that sometimes can be a a more difficult backdrop for, for the sector. But nonetheless, we really like the industry and it's just cyclical growth versus secular growth. What about just looking ahead to the frontier in the digital economy, uh, you talked earlier about the metaverse, which is this sort of immersive internet that's using augmented reality and virtual reality. There's also a lot of talk about online gaming and so forth. I mean, you know, these areas can only exist with the help of advanced chips, but has that kind of computational power arrived? And sort of what does that mean for investing in these various areas of the sector? Yeah, so... In one respect, yes, and in one respect, no. And what I mean by that is the content that's being developed for the metaverse is, is starting to spin up. And we have examples of you know entire companies that are quote-unquote metaverse-type companies, a Roblox or you know Epic Fortnite, for example, are kind of like early iterations of what the metaverse can look like. They're digital economies. They're immersive. There's transactions within them digital currencies. The only thing they don't have right now is, you know, they're, they're not played via virtual reality or augmented reality. So we're really early in the process and having followed this space for many years, I always feel like, ah, yeah, we're still a couple years away. 
And, and then, you know, two years comes and we're like, ah, we're a couple years away. This one does feel like we're probably closer to actually being, you know, <laughs> a couple years away, like for real, <laughs> in terms of like seeing some, some inflection. It's, it's, it's hard, you know, it, it's really hard. I mean, getting the form factors right and the technology that goes into developing a really elegant set of glasses or an experience like the meta headsets and it's going to take some time and we need both people to feel comfortable using the end device and we need a sufficient amount of content um, to come together and in that context that's where you get what i refer to as kind of the two sides of the network going and the flywheel and importantly, I think an area of the metaverse that doesn't get talked as much about is the enterprise opportunity. And we're actually like really enthusiastic about that because there are so many use cases. You know, you combine AI with virtual reality and you think about things that you can do in construction or medicine or commercial real estate, online education and learning. There's just so much you can do that you can't do in the physical economy. Uh, in a more efficient way. And, you know, it, it, we, we kind of feel like there's just going to be this bifurcation of kind of enterprise metaverses, consumer metaverses, some of them, some of them will tie together, some of them won't. And it's going to create all of these really unique opportunities. And I mean, it's a whole different discussion, but digital currency, NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens and kind of the way that business gets transacted in the metaverse might look in many ways similar. To the physical world, but then in many ways different as well. So I know that's a little bit of a tangent. We don't need to go there, but that's kind of where we're at. You can kind of see between the clouds now, <laughs> <laughs> right? And, and, and what's coming. Well, I appreciate that tangent because for me, the metaverse, and I don't know about you, Matt, but it's still sort of very conceptual in my mind. And so of trying to figure out what is the actual gain that you get from it, because from the cloud, when you talked about it earlier, it was you know, lowering the barriers of entry for businesses. It was providing scale, finding efficiencies. So with the metaverse, what is sort of the end goal with that? And could that be as big of a market opportunity as the cloud, or could it be even bigger in your view? Well, the cloud has to enable it. Mm -hmm. So realistically speaking, the cloud's probably bigger than the metaverse, but depending on how the metaverse evolves, it could be like the next big, computing paradigm. If we think about like what the PC revolution ushered in, it rushed in productivity like we hadn't seen because you put a PC in many houses and every business and just allowed us to do things we weren't able to do before. And then the next big wave of compute was the smartphone with the iPhone that came to market in 2007, I think it was. And it ushered in like not just putting a computer in your pocket that had the same processing power that a PC had in, you know, like 10 years ago, but it introduced this whole other opportunity because it was connected back to the cloud as well around an application economy. And, you know, that's what we've seen. We've effectively seen the explosion of the mobile internet based application economy over the last 15 years. It's been 15 years. And, that's maturing. And so what you can envision is the next leg of growth or the next big computing platform being AR, VR in multiple different form factors. And that's going to create 
an entirely different type of economy than what we've seen historically. And I love this example because for those of you that haven't heard of Roblox or have heard of it, but don't completely understand exactly what goes on in it, it's just this immersive game that's this combination of, you know, developers that develop games within the game and then consumers that consume those games. And there's a digital currency called Robux. And, you know, it's really cool and played mostly by younger people. So I talk to my kids about it. Um, that's how I learn about all, all this stuff is just, you know, watch what they do. Naturally, yes. <laughs> right. And, you know, <laughs> understanding that we're not going to catch all this stuff, but they are. But the most fascinating thing that I've seen in, in, in Roblox over the last year is they did a, a collaboration with Gucci and it's, they created something called the Gucci garden. And what it was, was you could go into the Gucci garden and, you know, hang out, but buy Gucci goods. And they were effectively virtual representations of Gucci handbags or scarves or whatever else it was. And the most fascinating part of it is for skeptics on what the digital economy might bring and, and so forth. Digital Gucci handbags were trading for a higher price than the physical handbags were trading for in the physical world. And these are real, real dollars at work. Oh my goodness. But it was because, <laughs> yeah, it was because their scarcity value, there's this just whole identification factor in the digital world that's, that's not dissimilar than that of the physical world. And in some ways you don't have any barriers to it because, you know, the sky's the limit. Right. And so it was, I, that was just one of those proof points where I'm like, if I wasn't spending enough time thinking about it, I need to be spending a lot more time thinking about the potential implications of, <laughs> of where we're going. Matt, are you going to rush out to the Gucci garden and <laughs> start making some purchases? I'm already on my iPhone doing that right now. <laughs> Well, maybe we should come back to the real physical world a little bit and talk about um, inflation and the impact that that might have on technology. And, and Matt, I don't know if you want to sort of take that question and think about the economic implications. Well, I think um, certainly, as Denny mentioned earlier, we're actually getting started on the rate hiking path. And, and that certainly does have an impact by the math of things on multiples. But you typically find that once the market gets comfortable with the path of those hikes, et cetera. The market tends to settle down and then resumes, maybe not as, as fast and furious as earlier in the cycle, but more mid-cycle, late-cycle type of, of activity. But certainly, the inflation dynamic poses a risk. It makes it tough on policymakers, and it, it will inc in introduce volatility into the market if there is uh, the sense of a policy error. And then on top of that, given geopolitical issues that could create shortages, Danny, how manageable do you think this will be for semiconductor makers and in general, any supply chain comments or thoughts that you have being on the front lines? Yeah. You know, I, I do wish I had a crystal ball on this one because- there are a couple of different cross currents. You know, I'm, I'm going to talk a little econ 101 and finance 101. You know, if supply is constrained and demand is still strong, we kind of know what that means from a pricing. And so, for example, you know, over the last year, semiconductors have been able to take price at levels that they haven't taken in 20 years. And so that could potentially continue to put a lot of pressure on the supply chain and actually be good for margins and pricing and the general inventory and demand backdrop. But the thing I think a little bit more about is kind of just demand destruction of the general economy and then 
maybe more importantly is the rate and progress of the rate hikes. And I totally agree with what Matt said is generally a lot of angst as we come in to these environments. And then once we can actually see the light at the end of the tunnel and how far these rates are going to go, it's kind of like getting back to business on where, you know, the best economic growth is and the strongest companies and ultimately those start to get rewarded again. And at the same time, it seems that rising costs might actually drive some companies to invest more in tools and technology that help them find efficiencies, et cetera. So that might actually benefit some of these cloud providers or software application providers, correct? Yes. I kind of think about it two ways. One is if you've got physical costs that are going up and you have wage pressures, a natural place to invest is in automation and technology to make your business more efficient. And if there's one thing that the pandemic taught us is that there were so many companies worldwide that were completely flat-footed with like a limited ability to actually respond the way that they needed to respond. But over you know a 12-month period or so, they were able to do things to make their companies you know much more productive and enable virtual work environments, which was pretty cool. But kind of thinking about inflationary environment in the same respect, you kind of have two things like, okay, we should see more investment into productivity enhancing technologies. Then the other thing that kind of hit on it, this is where I'll, I'll pull finance 101 out, all things equal, if you got to increase your discount rate because interest rates are going up, the value of cash flows goes down, right? But I think one thing that's really important about that, and this is where growth comes into the equation, make sure you're focused on secular growth, is that it might cause a year of pain because the discount of cash flow analysis brings the value of the company down like 20 or 25%, maybe more. But if you grow 25 or 30%, all things equal, you kind of digest for a year and then suddenly you're back to fair value and kind of, you know, where you're going from here. And it's a very simplified way to look at it. But I kind of look at like the best companies that are trading at reasonable valuations that are getting hit right now because of rising rates. You know, oftentimes it's kind of like biding your time. And if you have a combination of getting to the other side on interest rates and this pressure to automate and improve productivity, that actually could be a pretty good scenario for many of these companies as we start looking into 2023, 24 and so forth. Well, Denny, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure having you on. And um, we really hope to have you back and get an update on what Gucci bags you've uh, (laughs) collected (laughs) or you and your children have collected. Great. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. We hope you'll tune in next month. We'll speak with one of our analysts who covers European industrials to talk about volatility in the commodities market. In the meantime, I'm Carolyn Bigda. I'm Matt Perone. Stay well. And thanks for listening. presented are as of the date published, they are for information purposes only and should not be used or construed as investment, legal or tax advice or as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any security, investment strategy or market sector. Nothing in this material shall be deemed to be a direct or indirect provision of investment management services specific to any client requirements. 
opinions and examples are meant as an illustration of broader themes, and not an indication of trading intent, are subject to change and may not reflect the views of others in the organization. It is not intended to indicate or imply that any illustration, example mentioned is now or was ever held in any portfolio. No forecasts can be guaranteed and there is no guarantee that the information supplied is complete or timely, nor are there any warranties with regard to the results obtained from its use. Janus Henderson Investors is the source of data unless otherwise indicated, and has reasonable belief to rely on information and data sourced from third parties. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Not all products or services are available in all jurisdictions. This material or information contained in it may be restricted by law, may not be reproduced or referred to without express written permission or used in any jurisdiction or circumstance in which its use would be unlawful. Janice Henderson is not responsible for any unlawful distribution of this material to any third parties, in whole or in part. The contents of this material have not been approved or endorsed by any regulatory agency. Janice Henderson Investors is the name under which investment products and services are provided by the entities identified in the following jurisdictions. A. Europe by Janus Capital International Limited, Registration Number 3594615, Henderson Global Investors Limited, Registration Number 906355, Henderson Investment Funds Limited, Registration Number 2678531, Henderson Equity Partners Limited, Registration Number 2606646, each registered in England and Wales at 201 Bishopsgate, London East C2M, 3AE and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, and Henderson Management SA, Registration Number B22848 at 2 Rue de Bitburg, L1273, Luxembourg and regulated by the Commission de Surveillance du Secteur Financier. B. The US by SEC registered investment advisors that are subsidiaries of Janus Henderson Group PLC. C. Canada through Janus Capital Management LLC only to institutional investors in certain jurisdictions. D. Singapore by Janus Henderson Investors, Singapore, Limited, Co. Registration Number 19970078 2N. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by Monetary Authority of Singapore. E. Hong Kong by Janus Henderson Investors Hong Kong Limited. This material has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. F. Taiwan ROC by Janus Henderson Investors Taiwan Limited, independently operated, Suite 45A1, Taipei 101 Tower, Number 7, Section 5 Sinyi Road, Taipei, 110, Telephone, 02-81-001-1001. Approved SICE License Number 023, issued in 2018 by Financial Supervisory Commission. G. South Korea by Janus Henderson Investors, Singapore, limited only to qualified professional investors, as defined in the Financial Investment Services and Capital Market Act and its sub-regulations, H. Japan by Janus Henderson Investors, Japan, Limited, regulated by Financial Services Agency and registered as a financial instruments firm conducting investment management business, investment advisory and agency business and type 2 financial instruments business, I. Australia and New Zealand by Janus Henderson Investors, Australia, Limited, ABN 4712427951818, and its related bodies corporate including Janus Henderson Investors, Australia, Institutional Funds Management Limited, ABN 16165119531. AFSL 444266, and Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Funds Management Limited, ABN 4316417744, AFSL 444268. J. The Middle East by Janice Capital International Limited, regulated by the Dubai Financial Services Authority as a representative office. No transactions will be concluded in the Middle East and any inquiries should be made to Janice Henderson. We may record telephone calls for our mutual protection, to improve customer service and for regulatory record-keeping purposes. Technology industries can be significantly affected by obsolescence of existing technology, short product cycles, falling prices and profits, competition from new market entrants, and general economic conditions. A concentrated investment in a single industry could be more volatile than the performance of less concentrated investments in the market as a whole. Growth stocks are subject to increased risk of loss and price volatility and may not realize their perceived growth potential. Value stocks can continue to be undervalued by the market for long periods of time and may not appreciate to the extent expected. Janice Henderson is a trademark of Janice Henderson Group PLC or one of its subsidiaries. Copyright Janice Henderson Group PLC. 
C042242985. O41524, TL.